Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We have so much going on here at Ohio Mysteries, and all of it fantastic. Last week, we brought you the axe murder of Rosa Calvin. And then on Wednesday, Dan and Mike brought you the fantastic story of the Mad Miller of Milan, which was truly fascinating. If you haven't checked out Ohio Mysteries Backroads, you definitely need to do it soon. Just check out any Wednesday episode from the last few weeks, and you will truly be impressed. Now, we have something very special for you tonight. Paula is bringing us a story that has captured the imagination of a nation and its ties to the Buckeye State. She personally interviewed the subject for a story a long time ago. However, the subject for tonight's podcast held a few things back, and we are going to bring that to you right now. So let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Ten years ago, I had the opportunity to interview Paul Landis, a former Secret Service agent from Ohio. In 1963, he found himself clinging to the running board of the car tailing President John F. Kennedy on the day that Kennedy was shot dead while being driven through Dallas, Texas. I wrote a story about Landis's experience for the Akron Beacon Journal on the 50th anniversary of the assassination. It was a fascinating interview, the story of how this young man's career had evolved into a most unlikely one as bodyguard to the president's family. And it was a role that unwittingly placed him at the scene of one of the most tragic moments in our country's history. But there was something Landis did not share with me in that interview, something he held close to his chest for 60 years until this month when he started giving interviews with national media in advance of a book he is releasing on October the 10th. The book is called The Final Witness, and it contains a secret about a bullet and a decision that Landis made that may have some folks rethinking their theories about what happened that day. November 22, 1963, Dallas, Texas. Paul Landis, 28 years old, stood on the running board of the slow-moving Cadillac that trailed the presidential limousine. Like the other three Secret Service agents who clung to the outside of the car, he scanned the crowd, looking for potential problems. Though all four men had a common goal, each also had a unique assignment. Landis was on that car because he was one of two men with a direct responsibility for protecting the First Lady. If Jackie Kennedy had been somewhere else that day, Landis would have been with her. He was in Dallas only because she wanted to join her husband on his trip to Texas, and she was sitting right next to him in that open convertible. 
As the uncovered limo made the turn around Dealey Plaza, the smiling Kennedys waved to fans that lined the sidewalk. Then, suddenly, the peace was shattered by a loud crack that came from behind and to the right of the motorcade. The agents whipped their heads over their shoulder. Was that a firecracker? An agent asked Landis. I don't think so, Landis said. Landis also instinctively looked at the presidential car, just in case the sound was a blown tire. It wasn't. Then there was a second shot. At least Landis thought so. Then again, maybe it was an echo. The motorcade was nearing an overpass, so maybe some strange sound reverberation? These thoughts came to him, one at a time, and yet it took just a fraction of a second because it was just as quickly clear that something terrible had happened. The president was slumping in his seat. Landis's partner, Clint Hill, the other agent assigned to Jackie Kennedy, hopped off the opposite running board and ran toward the limo as a third shot split the air. Landis saw the right side of the president's head explode from a sniper's bullet. The motorcade raced the president to the hospital. Landis clung to the side of the Cadillac. His partner, Hill, reached the limo and scrambled onto the trunk. Landis recalled Hill turning back to the Cadillac, looking at his fellow agents and shaking his head. Then Hill lifted his hand, thumb pointing down. Paul Landis was born in Toledo and raised in the Columbus suburb of Worthington. His career path couldn't have been any further from where it ended up. He graduated from Ohio Wesleyan in 1957 with a degree in geology. But it didn't seem a bachelor's job was going to be enough. The jobs he tried applying for wanted a master's degree, and Landis, frankly, didn't have it in him. He was done with school. He was 23 years old, working in a clothing store, and wondering what else he might do when he ran into a family friend and they started to catch up. The friend started sharing tales of his life as a Secret Service agent for President Dwight Eisenhower. It sounded exciting. The Secret Service is one of America's oldest federal law enforcement agencies, founded in 1865. But its original purpose was as an arm of the U.S. Treasury Department. It was the mission of Secret Service agents to track down and stop counterfeiting operations, which was a very serious problem at the time. A little later, their roles were broadened to include investigations into the Ku Klux Klan, non-conforming distillers, smugglers, mail robbers, land frauds, and a number of other infractions against federal laws. And then, in 1894, near its 30-year anniversary, they took on a new role as the informal part-time protection of President Grover Cleveland. When President William McKinley was assassinated less than a decade later, Secret Service agents started being assigned to presidents full-time. By the time Paul Landis came around, 
the force that was even in charge of protecting presidential family members around the clock. So when Landis scheduled an appointment with a Secret Service field office in Columbus, he was expecting something more along those lines. But the officer in charge cautioned the young Landis that presidential protection was a rare post. More likely, he'd be assigned more mundane tasks, like investigating stolen Social Security checks. The officer told Landis, go home for a week. Think about what that's really what you want to do. Then, if you're still interested, call back. One week to the hour, Landis called him back. It took another year for Landis to pass all the exams and background checks required of such a sensitive job. And when he was finally accepted into the Corps at the age of 24, he was the youngest Secret Service hire to date. He was assigned to Cincinnati and, sure enough, found himself chasing thieves who swiped Social Security checks from mailboxes. It was still fun, Landis told me, though ultimately I still hope to be on protection duty someday. It didn't take all that long. Just six months later, he was assigned to look after President Eisenhower's four grandchildren on the family farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was an unusual detail, but Eisenhower was concerned for their safety. Meanwhile, Landis was still going through Secret Service school. In addition to weapons training, he had to take courses in behavioral psychology, like how to control a crowd, how to spot trouble in a gathering, and how to work a motorcade. He had no idea how useful that was going to be, but the lesson came just in time. Because in January of 1961, Landis graduated Secret Service School and was immediately sent to the inauguration ceremony for John F. Kennedy. Landis stayed in Washington as part of the President's personal guard for three months, then was reassigned to look after Kennedy's children, three-year-old Caroline and baby John Jr., Some fellow agents joked that it was a demotion getting kitty detail, but Landis saw the sense in it. He was, after all, the youngest agent. For a couple of years, he drove the kids on trips to the zoo, jogged alongside Caroline when she went horse riding, and chaperoned them when they visited their playmates. And because Caroline and John Jr. were in bed early, Landis always had his evenings off. A nice little perk. Landis's job had him in a seasonal rotation of locations. They spent spring on a farm in Middleburg, Virginia, summers in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, autumns in Newport, Rhode Island, and winters in Palm Beach, Florida. And then, two years into that assignment, he was offered a new role. The agent in charge of Jackie Kennedy had lost his partner and asked Landis if he wanted to join him. Jackie already knew and trusted Landis, so it was an easy transition. And Landis still got to see plenty of the children he'd grown so fond of. But now he was traveling to exotic locations. Jackie Kennedy's schedule took her to places like Italy, Morocco, and Greece. Landis enjoyed that. More often, though, 
His job took him to a variety of American cities where the First Lady was called on to play her official role. Places like Dallas, Texas. John Kennedy's personality had always been a challenge for Secret Service agents. Oh, he was plenty nice enough, but that was the problem. He was a little too personable. He liked going into crowds and shaking hands. Nightmare scenarios for the men whose jobs were to protect him. And when Kennedy decided to travel through Dallas in an uncovered car, well, how do you protect someone from that? History showed that assassinations were usually an up-close-and-personal thing. So yeah, a long-distance sniper was a possibility, and Landis recalled them discussing how the office and store windows along the route posed a threat. But the agents were mostly interested in the gathering on the ground. When the motorcade passed the building known as the School Book Depository, Landis saw a crowd in front and thought, Oh, they must have let everyone out of the office to come and see. That building was used as a warehouse for school materials. But there was one employee who didn't leave the building. Inside, Lee Harvey Oswald remained on the sixth floor, preparing his rifle. As the small caravan of cars turned in front of the building for the final stretch to the airport, Oswald lifted his gun to a window and took aim. Seven minutes after the first bullet reached Kennedy, the limo was pulling up at Parkland Memorial Hospital. It was 12.37 p.m. Jackie Kennedy was in the back of the limo, cradling her husband's head. Landis reached for her shoulder to help her from the car, but she wouldn't let go. It occurred to Landis that she didn't want to reveal the mess hidden beneath her hands. Landis's partner, Clint Hill, took off his coat and used it to cover the president's head. Only then did Jackie release him. Landis assisted the first lady through the hospital doors and sat with her outside the trauma room, keeping the area cleared of gawkers. By 2 p.m., they were on the move again already. The president's body, now in a coffin, was being wheeled from the hospital to a waiting ambulance. This speed resulted in an argument. Local officials objected. The president was the victim of a crime, they said. They wanted his body for their investigation. But it was as if Jackie Kenny and the Secret Service couldn't get Kennedy's body out of Texas fast enough. They ignored the orders of local officials and drove the ambulance to Air Force One, The plane's small opening wasn't built to handle caskets. Agents had to break the coffin handles off so it would slide through. Once on board, Landis watched 
as Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the new president. Johnson owned a 430-acre ranch outside Austin. The Kennedys had intended to spend Friday night and Saturday morning there, so he wasn't far when he got the call. Landis said watching Johnson get sworn in was the first time his emotions got the best of him. I broke down completely, he said. I don't remember too much of the flight back to Washington. By the time Kennedy's funeral was done, Landis had been awake for nearly four days, and he came to the conclusion that he didn't want to be a Secret Service agent anymore. He didn't want to act rashly, so he told himself he'd give it six months, and if he felt the same then, he'd leave. It was a brutal six months. Jackie Kennedy's grief was always present. Clint or I would drive her everywhere, Landis said, and it seemed everywhere we drove. She was crying, and people were gawking, and I just wanted people to leave this lady alone. I know Secret Service agents are supposed to be tough, but there was a lot of stress. It was just too much. So Landis gave it the six months he had promised himself, then resigned. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this, thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here, just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Landis's presence in Dallas that day made him something of an unwilling celebrity. It's all people wanted to talk about. He stopped telling new acquaintances about his past. He looked for a new job and racked up a diverse resume of job titles. Real estate agent, hand model, film production company owner, machine shop employee, house painter, handyman, And when I talked to him in 2013, he was a security guard for the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. He'd been able to internalize his memories for years until the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination approached. Some documentary makers brought all the former Kennedy agents together in Dallas for the filming of the book, The Kennedy Detail. Landis said it was therapeutic, learning that all the other agents had gone through what he had gone through, including an inescapable sense of guilt for having lost a president. I probably internalized it the worst, Landis told me. A lot of them were able to at least talk about it before, but doing the documentary was like lifting a big weight off my shoulder. It felt good to get it out. Landis's partner, Clint Hill wrote his own book, Mrs. Kennedy and Me. Landis had no plans for his own memoir. 
at least not in 2013. But eventually, he decided to bear his soul. Next month, October of 2023, his book, The Final Witness, will be released. And it contains a bombshell. In 1991, director Oliver Stone created his epic thriller, JFK. And if you recall that movie at all, or even the Seinfeld episode that spoofed a famous scene in it, much is made of what they called a magic bullet. The phrase refers to a copper-jacketed 6.5-millimeter projectile fired from Oswald's rifle, which, some people joked, appeared to have magical properties. The Warren Commission, which investigated the assassination, concluded that this single, intact, almost pristine bullet recovered from the scene of the crime struck both the president and Texas Governor John Connolly. It was the path of the bullet that had skeptics calling it magical because the theory was that it entered the president from behind exited from the front of his throat, continued on to Governor Connolly in the front seat, pierced his back and chest, went through his wrist, and landed in his thigh. It seemed incredible that a single bullet could maintain enough force to enter and exit so many things so many times for so much damage. Why was so much action attributed to the single bullet? Well, in part, it was because this bullet was supposedly found lying on a gurney that held the injured Governor Connolly at Parkland Memorial Hospital. Investigators assumed since it was with him, it had exited his body during efforts to save his life, which they did. He was fine. Now, fast forward to 2023, and Paul Landis, who was never interviewed by the Warren Commission, by the way, said that bullet could never have entered Connolly because it shouldn't have been discovered on Connolly's gurney. That bullet was found behind Kennedy in his seat, and Landis knows that because he's the one who found it, and Landis revealed a new story about this bullet. Landis said after the motorcade arrived at the hospital and Jackie Kennedy exited the car, he spotted two bullet fragments in a pool of bright red blood. Then he noticed the fully intact bullet in the seam of the tufted seat behind where the president was sitting. He was worried that souvenir hunters might spot it and grab it, and it didn't appear to him that anyone was trying to protect the car as a crime scene. So he grabbed the bullet and popped it into his pocket, thinking he would pass it on to his supervisor. As he explained to national media this month, there was nobody there to secure the scene, and that was a big, big bother to me. All the agents that were there were focused on the president. This was all going on so quickly, and I was afraid that it was a piece of evidence that I realized right away, very important, and I didn't want it to disappear or get lost. 
So it was, Paul, you've got to make a decision. And I grabbed it. A few minutes later, after Landis entered the hospital, a gathering of agents, local officials, and medical staff had jostled him into a position where he was right next to Kennedy as the president lay on the stretcher. So he plucked the bullet from his pocket and laid it next to Kennedy, assuming it would find its way into evidence. Landis has a theory on how the bullet ended up in the back seat to begin with. He guesses that the bullet struck Kennedy in the back, but without enough power to penetrate far, that it probably popped back out as the president's body was removed from the limo onto a gurney. As to how this bullet ended up on Connolly's stretcher and associated with him, Landis has no idea. Reportedly, a hospital staffer found the bullet on Connolly's gurney when he was moving it after Connolly was taken off the stretcher. So, if Landis is right, and the bullet was from Kennedy's seat and never responsible for Connolly's wound, how does this change the story of what happened that day? Well, maybe not at all. But... If the famous magic bullet wasn't so magical and didn't reach Governor Colony, that means another bullet did. And in a case that has stirred the imaginations of conspiracy theorists for 60 years, that's all it takes. Already, some are weaving a new narrative with this extra bullet, saying Oswald could never have reloaded fast enough to account for the slug that must have hit Connolly at the same time bullets were striking the president. And that, some say, could give more credence to the idea that conspiracy theorists love, that there was a second gunman, maybe someone concealed in that infamous grassy knoll. There is no evidence for this, and nobody could ask Oswald about it because he was famously killed by Jack Ruby while still in police custody. Landis told me in 2013 that, as hard as it may be to accept, he's certain the president was brought down by one guy with a gun. He said he understands the need for people to think that something this big had to have come from some huge, organized, well-planned effort involving many people. But it was much simpler than that, he insisted. He said, Oswald, three shots, that was it. He was a creep who got lucky, just some nut who, for some reason, everything went his way that day. But Landis did tell a New York Times reporter this month that he admits now to a little doubt, given that he didn't realize how so much of the investigation depended on the idea of that magic bullet theory. Landis said it wasn't until 2014, and that was after all the 50th anniversary stories came out, that he realized the official account of the bullet was wrong to his mind. He had never before bothered to read or watch anything having to do with the assassination, not even the Warren Commission report. It was just too painful. 
And when he finally learned about the magic bullet theory in 2014, he said he didn't come forward then because, frankly, he was now afraid he had done something wrong. Others, including his former partner, Clint Hill, whom he confided in, cautioned him to let it go, that bringing it up now would have repercussions. It's not uncommon, however, for someone in their advanced years to want to unburden themselves. Paul Landis is now 88. Ken Gormley, the president of Duquesne University and a prominent presidential historian, told the New York Times, it's very common as people get to the end of their lives. They want to make peace with things. They want to get on the table things they've been holding back, especially if it's a piece of history and they want the record corrected. This does not look like a play by someone trying to get attention for himself or money. I don't read it that way at all. I think he firmly believes this. Whether it fits together, I don't know. But people will eventually figure that out. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.